cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, where do I even start with this man? If it wasn't for him, nothing would sound the way that it does right now in heavy music and frankly music in general. It is the founder of the Dillinger Escape Plan. It's Ben Weinman. Ben, how are things? I'm good. That was quite an intro, and um, thank you for being patient with me. This uh, kind, young, handsome man has been very patient with getting me on this, uh, this, this, this podcast, so thank you. It's an honor to have you on. You truly, like, from your, from your work with Kimbra all the way back to your stuff with Dillinger, your imprint, it doesn't matter what genre you're in, you're there. And people are getting influenced by you. You are incredibly important to, to music as a whole. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I mean, I, I don't know. I, it's um, when I talk to young people about music, um, I always tell them the story about Dillinger was created out of a, uh, out of just giving up on actually making it on music. So the music we created was really <clears throat> an attempt just to create something we enjoyed because we didn't think it was possible to make, to make it. And hence it, it uh, created a scenario where people felt what we were doing was honest and the music we were making was honest and real. And it wasn't for commercial value or to copy something that's already popular. Uh, and that's why it worked. So the lesson I learned from giving up, is that sometimes making something without the intention of, of uh, wild success is, is, is more important than um, copying and using what's out there to, uh, to learn how to do things. Well, and you work with such enigmatic front men from Dimitri to Mike Patton to, to Greg. What do you think you learned the most from, from those individuals? And how do you think that it helped you now producing? and actually just playing with, with a band like Suicidal. Interesting. Um, you know, I, I, I think each one of those vocalists really represents an important time in my trajectory um, and, and in the history of the Dillinger Escape Plan. And I remember talking to Dimitri um, during the last... Uh, tour for Dillinger and we had announced the band was over and he was saying something about how he, uh, you know, he's so proud of his work with the band, but he can't, um, he can't not admit he's a little jealous that he wasn't there for some of the cool stuff that happened towards the end and all these things. And, and what I said to him, I was like, the Dillinger escape plan is not me. It's not Greg. It's not you. It's not Liam. It's not Mike Patton. It's not one of the many amazing drummers we had. It's this entity that is exists as this thing. It's not. It's it, and without all of it, it isn't anything. It's it's this giant story, the Dillinger Escape Plan. It's this. Uh, it's this this enigma. This entity. It's this 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 entity that exists uh, because of all the people that believe in it or have worked on it or have been in it or, you know, it, it, it really is a, every individual that's been involved. has been really important. Um, and so, uh, I truly feel that. And when I think of Dimitri, I think about the years when 
we started the band and it was like, hey, you be the singer. Cool. I'll be the guitar player. Where's the drummer? I don't know. Let's go find an ad up in the record store. Oh, looking for a band. Let's call it Chris Penny Answers, you know? Like, those are the times that were really exciting and really fun. Um, and and then when we did the work with Patton, that was a real um, indication that, that our heroes were really recognizing what we were doing. We might be doing something semi-special because people that we really respect are digging what we're doing. So, um, and, and it also was a time when we realized that we didn't want to be boxed into just a heavy, crazy, screamy uh, corner that we were capable of so much more. And uh, being really the second release after our full length, we really need to solidify that we were not going to be um, defined by any specific genre or style that we needed to right away be as diverse as we want to be in order to not be in a jail for the rest of our career. And then Greg was uh, somebody who kind of was able to come in and embody the best of both worlds and bring something completely new. So all the, all those vocalists were really important and, um, and they're all equally important as far as the trajectory and the story of Dillinger. Well, and now producing, how do you feel? Well, actually, be it Dillinger, be it playing in Suicidal or, or even Giraffe Tongue, what do you think that you learn the most from being on stage and recording yourself that you can bring to somebody like Kimbra right now? Well, with Kimbra, I mean, I did a little creative stuff with her, but I'm mostly doing the management stuff for her. I'm managing her career. I'm doing the business. Um, and I think having the experience I have creatively certainly helps, but mostly it's my experience in the DIY world that has been helpful and what she's really wanted from me. Um, she saw me as someone who was able to create my own path uh, and do what I want to do and find an audience for it. And that's really was appealing to her. So that that's what we try to do together. We, we kind of pulled her out of the major weight label world and really working on more direct fan interactions and support. And um, she's somebody who is uh, wildly, wildly talented and created and quite frankly, often intimidating to me creatively. <laughs> so I'm like, <laughs> all right, I'll just, I'll just do your business. You, you do the music, but um, with suicidal uh, and then with suicidal and well, and then with draft tongue orchestra, it was my first time really collaborating. You know, Dillinger was primarily me and a drummer making music um, historically. And, uh, and then draft tongue was rallying a whole bunch of names of people <laughs> that all had very busy schedules and different personalities and, and it was really, really hard to get done. Um, really hard to get done. And I learned that, um, it's really hard to have a democracy and you can learn a lot from it and really grow. And I did, but it's hard to get things done when you have a democracy in a band. <laughs> and then with su suicidal, I've had the pleasure of not, having any involvement in the business or in even the songwriting or, you know, I've done a little bit of playing on some of their tracks that they've done like re-recordings -re -re of old songs and I've thrown my style into it, but um, I love showing up and just playing and going home. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I care about the band. I grew up listening to it. It's not just some gig paid gig for me, but I love just being one of the guys and not, 
like the boss, you know, not the guy everyone's going to talk about around the water cooler. Like, did you, did you like, I love just enjoying it, being a fan and being on stage at the same time. And so it's great. You've had this interesting year and a little bit now with the pandemic. Have you been looking back at the Dillinger escape plan in, in a different light? I think it could be said that everybody was a little burned out at the end there. Are you yes. looking back at it a little bit more fondly now? De- definitely. I'm getting itch- itchy to be on stage, at least with suicidal. And I definitely think about Dillinger and, um, uh, I think of Dillinger and I, and I'm able to like, listen back a little more, um, a little more objectively and less fatigued, <laughs> um, than I was after 20 years of grinding maybe. And I, I'm really proud of it. Um, I don't have an urge to do a reunion only because um, I'm just really proud of how it ended. And uh, I think we really did it right. And I'm not saying we never would, but it's not something in my mind right now. And everyone's doing their own things and still forging new paths. And uh, yeah. I would love to talk about your farm, the animal sanctuary, what, what, what you've done, what you've mainly been doing really since Dillinger ended um, was it exciting that you got this year and a bit now that you could just really focus on that? Well, I still got to make a living, uh, and trying to do it in a way that's uncompromising is always difficult in the music business, but I've managed to, to do it. Um, the pandemic hasn't been easy on anyone in this business or others, uh, but especially in the entertainment business, the live touring situation is, was just obliterated. And I think people um, overestimated uh, the interest in the streaming concert thing. I don't think that really was even close to a replacement in any way, shape, or form to the the live touring business. Um, But uh, I did start scoring some movies during this pandemic. And that has been such such a blessing and a pleasure to me. Because I do want to be home with my kids. I do want to be working on my farm and, and taking care of these rescue animals. But I also need to be creative and make music. And, and it's, an, it's a new challenge. Um, and it's just also something I do by myself. I'm not really working with other people. I'm, I'm just kind of aside from the director. And uh, it's really enjoyable. So when you get a film project, how are you approaching it? Are you really giving the film uh, like a once go just visually are you talking to the director even before it's filmed how are you approaching these these projects right now so i've done two uh significant you know i i, I did a one a while back that was more of a really small kind of found footage film and i was doing weird bluegrass music but as far as these more um upper scale movies with real actors and things like that um i found that the best thing getting a script it's sending me the script's great but like i don't i start reading it i'm like i don't know what's going on i don't know who jim and bob is like i don't have the attention deficit to bob says this and then jim da bop and then be and then fall down the street like it means nothing to me it doesn't give me any vision or anything but what i found is just asking the director what the movie's about and hearing it from his words really give me an idea and i've also uh been lucky enough to be able to go on set for the last two movies I did. Um, and it was interesting with all the COVID compliance stuff, but they did a really good job at making it happen. And, uh, and I actually, they actually filmed p- 
part of one of the movies at my home. So it's fun to hear the music and then watch it, see my barn in it and stuff. <laughs> but that also gave me a vibe, like being able to watch what's going on, although it's obviously there's lights and there's crew everywhere. I start to think, man, maybe this should be more classical than like electronic because I'm seeing this gun shooting scene and it might be beautiful with more of a, you know, classical or, or symphonic background rather than the heavy drum electronic thing. So, um, yeah, I, I'm still figuring it out, but mainly I, I like to ask the director what the film is about, see how their passion and feeling comes across while telling the story. And then I just go through it. I don't use the temp music. I don't listen to it. it I always have a copy with temp music, but I'll try not to listen to it at first and just try to see where I think music should be. And so far the directors on these projects have been, uh, you're on, you're good, you know? I, I agree, so that's been good. And then I just go and go and go, and I have a little idea where the story's going from hearing the director tell me it, but I'm seeing it like the fan is too. So I'm seeing all the twists and turns and surprises, and I just try and react to it musically. And um, and then when time starts running out, I start listening to the temp music just at least <laughs> to see. All right, I have like three days. Where are at least where at least is the temp music? You know, I might not like listen to it for uh, inspiration, but at least I'll know where the editors thought music would be good so I can at least knock out that last, you know, home stretch sometimes. But that's, that's how I've been approaching it. What do you feel the biggest challenge you've had doing these film scores has been? Working with video stuff when I really just want to make audio time code, um, making sure that these highly professional, very experienced uh, editing room people are getting files and the format in the way that they need to get it and used to getting it for motion picture um where i've never even followed the rules of a traditional producer or songwriter even in my world ever so um that's been a little challenging just just making sure i'm efficient and uh organized enough to to get people what they need in the way that they need it how big did well, was film growing up for you? Did you gather a lot of influence from films growing up? And, and what were some yes. of those films? Well, it, not only was it film, but it was also Broadway music because my, my dad was heavily into Broadway and we lived right outside of New York City. So I, from a very young age, was going and seeing Broadway shows. And uh, I think the expression and the storytelling in that music um, and the density and all the different instrumentation heavily influenced not only what I'm doing now, but also Dillinger. And um, believe it or not, um, and the darker stuff always spoke to me more. Um, but um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, from a very early age, really noticed all, I, obviously there's John Williams with the Indiana Jones themes and the Star Wars themes and, and those kind of things. But uh, even at a young age, I would like, like movies that a young person may not like because of the music. Uh, you know, like there's there a movie called Somewhere in Time with Christopher Reeves. It was just like very romantic movie. And it was like, I love the music so much that it made, the, I, I watched it over and over again. And I was a kid, I was little, like I shouldn't have cared about some romantic time, you know, <laughs> uh, piece, you know, movie or whatever. But the, the music was also, I also remember really uh, enjoying uh, 
I, that movie Legend with Tom Cruise back in the day. It was one of his first movies. He was very young, and it had Tim Curry as a devil in it. And uh, the DVD had two versions of the music, one for the European release, which was typical score, classic, classic score music, and then the, the North American release, which was very 80s synth poppy. And I had always watched it with the synth poppy kind of 80s theme the music going to it. And when I got that DVD and was able to watch it with the more traditional score music, I was blown away at how much it affected the movie. It was so much more creepy and weird with like, with creepy score music, like typical, like symphonic orchestrated score music than with like synth pop. It changed the movie completely. And that was very uh, impactful. Do you feel like you go back to that a lot, especially when you're scoring a film? Just maybe I'm going to try it this way and see how much it really does impact for me. Or do you kind of just, once you find your path, you're kind of staying down that path a little bit. I'm still learning. I mean, I think one thing I did on this last film, uh, it's called survivalist, uh, with John Malkovich and Jonathan Reese Myers. And it's a kind of post-apocalyptic, um, covid movie really it's about the virus has mutated and everybody's dying except for john malkovich who somehow comes out of it he he's 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 somehow recovers and so he becomes this kind of messiah that people are following so how did he do this and essentially he's chasing and look trying to capture this girl who uh, apparently has is immune to it and wants to procreate with her to create a new race of people that can survive this thing and um so with that one this one I, instead of just opening up a video and started playing around i really created the soundscapes i wanted and and um the vibes and the sounds and i went for like acoustic guitars because i had the westerny vibe but then there was action so i wanted to have traditional big drums in it as well and then some kind of mandolin things that were really affected out and tweaked because the mandolin feels very very classic western in that way but um but it was modernized a lot so i was able to use it more as soundscapes as opposed to just a traditional instrument and i that was a new thing for me which i think is important which i probably should always do now is to create these soundscapes that are for this movie and then create music within there and alter obviously if you need to and add it but but having those constants i think really helped bring a vibe to the movie um I also find it very interesting. I, I've learned that you can drastically affect the acting with the music. And that's really interesting. Like there'll be an actor where, who's kind of like, Ugh, this person is overacting without music. This is awful. It's like so dramatic. And, you're like, what the, and I've learned that I can kind of play with that, with the music and, and make it appropriate. And that's really exciting. It's really exciting. I'm basically an actor in the scene. You know, are there any instruments or techniques that you've always wanted to try out that maybe you haven't got to yet or are, are kind of upcoming in, in the next few projects that you're working on? Um, I mean, I, I haven't scored a movie with a giant orchestra yet. You know, I've been basically using what I have at home and sample bank and things like that so while i've enjoyed really 
learning the craft of making sample library sound real because it's not just making the music, it's creating expression and learning how to do strings and, and, and horns and things like that in a way that sound real, like that's a whole nother animal. Um, and I've really enjoyed that learning curve, learning some of that stuff and working on that stuff. Um, but I do really want to have a massive orchestra and do a piece of the, I mean, obviously, and I haven't, I haven't done that yet. So. Well, and I think everything's better live. So when, when you are performing live with, let's say Dillinger, let's say suicidal, even giraffe tongue, how do you approach it differently every single time? Or do you, are you backstage and you are, are going to hit that stage the same way, no matter what, how do you approach each band each night, each performance? Yeah. Uh, man, I mean, there's a certain amount of energy I always put into it. And, and if I care about the music and like it, that obviously helps. And, um, Draft Tongue only played three shows, I believe, if, two or three shows. We had a, a little tour that got canceled because uh, Brent Hines broke his leg. But um, as far as Dillinger and Suicidal, um, it's not that I, – I, Suicidal's Entities is more fun to me. Like I think I'm really having fun, and the energy is coming from like, oh, man, I wore this tape out this song when I was a kid skating and like now I'm playing it and like I'm feeling that and I'm thinking like it's a little different. Dillinger is very visceral and um, coming from a different place. Are there any songs that you've really wanted to perform as suicidal that you've been like, Mike, I want to play this. And he's been like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> We've played all the best songs. Uh, there's some, I wish we played more. Um, that we played like once or twice and I'm like, Oh my God, that was awesome. But he doesn't, he plays like uh, as a metalhead guy, obviously I like lights, camera revolution the most. Cause it's like the most metal album. And I like the earlier stuff too. It's really punk, but um, there's definitely more of that album I'd like to play, but we play the classics. You can't bring me down and all that stuff. So it's a good time. Speaking of influences a little bit here, did you find that you were I guess acquiring the kind of art that you wanted to as, as a youth, or do you feel like you were out there trying to make the things that you wanted to hear, that you wanted to see, that you just wanted to feel essentially, or were you kind of getting influences from a lot of different places? I think as, as similar to, uh, to any young musician, you have these bands you idolize and you try to make bands that sound like that whether it's like, you know, I was listening to a lot of metal and, and grunge in the 90s when I was in high school. And so I was coming from like an Iron Maiden and, and a weird underground metal scene and then also enjoying the grunge thing and then um, got into some punk and underground music. And I pretty much mostly by the time we started Dillinger had the base of heavy aggressive music already established and I was kind of over it already. Not that I didn't love the classic albums I always loved, but I was looking for more. Um, so by the time Dillinger started, myself and most of the guys in the band at the time were listening to very diverse music, fusion, Mahavishnu Orchestra, music like Aphex Twin and Square Pusher, um, it, uh, 
and um, King Crimson and Weird Fusion and stuff like that. So I, I think we were, we wanted to play, if we wanted to play shows, we kind of had to find a scene and the underground punk scene was, was great because you could just play. Like a kid would just put a show on and you could play. It would be in their basement or it'd be at a VFW hall. So there was opportunity there. But we did have this weird amount of influence, these weird influences they didn't really fit in into that scene. And squeezing what we did into that scene, I think, is what created Dillinger, the, the kind of punk, aggressive, thrashy, violent version of fusion, weird fusion music. Party Smasher, where where do you see it going in, in the next little bit? And do you have any like really cool projects that you've been working on in association with that right now? Um, I mainly party smasher has become mainly like a management company and whether it's managing my own projects or Kimbra or, um, you know, earlier on I was, you know, putting on some shows and, and so in the future, I mean, I'm working on some things with some friends here. Uh, I'm living in central New Jersey right now, directly in the middle of New York and Philadelphia. Um, and we're looking at starting a venue and putting on some shows here um, and, and creating scene around this area. So I'm excited to do that. And that's very party smasher ethos and uh, way of doing things. So I, I, I'm just excited to get more young people involved in music for the right reasons. Um, so I think there's going to be a little more of that going on than in the near future. But What have you noticed are some of the biggest challenges for trying to get a venue up and running right now after everything that just happened in the last year and a bit, do you find it maybe a little bit easier? Do you find it harder? How is it trying to start a venue right now? Well, we're just at the start of it. We have a space that's just existing already and isn't being used. And, and the owner wants us to do stuff there and wants us to create community there. So um, that's an interesting thing. I mean, we still have to make it, suitable for for shows you know it's not really um, built out right but um we really don't have much to lose at, at this point um and we all have projects and there's local bands and young thing kids are doing things and there's really an underground cool scene happening in this area and sometimes i have to remind myself it's not dead i'm just old and you know was <laughs> going on tour at soundgarden nine nails i still know about it you know so I'm excited to, to dig in a little bit around here locally and, and see what's going on. Do you find like you're trying to find new bands still? Or do you have like friends that are just dropping dropping stuff on you like you should check this out? Do, do you find that you're really still there? Uh, I do. It, I still, I remember when I was young starting and even with Dillinger, the band before Dillinger, I was doing like, giving people tapes of like young label owners, even hardcore punk label owners, metal owners, and them kind of just being like, like throwing it on the table. And then I noticed they even take it with them or bands and they didn't even listen to it. And eventually most of those people were either regretted it because they ended up being Dillinger and, and we were doing very well in that world or, uh, came and tried to get us a deal or give us a deal or get involved. And some of them even ended up putting out some of the vinyl or something. And, and um, I guess I'm a little bit jaded because we had to do it the hard way, but they found out about us. It may not have been from that tape, but 
we made enough noise that they couldn't, we couldn't be ignored. And so I'm excited. Um, I'm excited by, by artists that are, are not so concerned with um, data and TikTok and trying to find out the cookie cutter way of making a band and producing a band and are just out playing, just doing it and loving it. And, you know, and, and then eventually it's like, wow, it, it comes to you, you figure it out, you hear about it, you know, this is special. So I do want to encourage people. I don't want to be like that jaded old guy who's like, don't play me your songs. Don't chase me around. And, but at the same time, I also feel there's something to be said for like just making so much noise that the people who need to find out about it, they do. You, you have some interesting projects coming up. Lots of rumblings, lots of like guest stars and, and just things that you've been working on that way. Is there anything that you can let us in on coming up other, other than the, all the score work? <laughs> oh man, before I got really busy with the score stuff, I started working on a project with a very prominent, well-known drummer from the grunge world. Um, who plays in more than one band and that's all I'm going to say because it's a little too premature but I'm going to start working on that again and it was really cool the stuff we were file swapping and sending things back and forth and pretty exciting and um, so I don't want to I, I, I've made the mistake of talking about things too much and then ends up taking nine years to get it out draft on work with you. but um, <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to just do stuff for enjoyment Stuff I, that's fun, stuff that doesn't create agita. <laughs> and even like locally, I'm playing with a local artist here who has a gallery and, and plays guitar and sings and I'm playing drums and we're doing a two-piece. Um, and that's really fun. It's called Bucko. And it's just me on drums bashing him on guitar with all kinds of pedals and we're just making cool, fun music. So yeah, I mean, like I am doing some things with more prominent names and I'm also doing fun stuff with my friends. And, uh, and scores, and that's pretty much how I'm taking my time. We'll see what ends up happening, where they go, if, how time will permit. But I'm also working on a track or two with uh, Barry McCreary, the, the score, the, um, who scores, uh, most people know him from Battlestar Galactica soundtrack, or The Walking Dead, or he did the, the recent Godzilla um, Godzilla movie. Yeah, the Godzilla movie. He's just an animal um, songwriter and his scores are insane and he's writing kind of a rock metal record and having all these guests on it so i'm doing some guitar on that so yeah i'm out there you know i'm doing it <laughs> <laughs> well ben thank you so much for coming on here today uh i, I hope you can come on again when, when you have a whole bunch of new projects yeah, and fun. yeah it really means a lot that you came on here thank you so much thank you man i really appreciate it of course thank you for listening this concludes our broadcast day